school year to be done. <laughs> Goodness gracious, I can't imagine. Uh, I try to remember the feeling uh, of, of being, how many, seniors, nearing the end, the finish line is upon you, hang in there, okay, uh, yeah, y'all hang in there, I know uh, y'all are probably worn out, just ready for school year to be done, uh, try to hang in there tonight, we are going to a back to, uh, in a lot of people's minds, obscurity. Um, we are going back to our storyline series where we started back in August in Genesis. Um, and so we're in numbers now. And it's taken us a while, but we're kind of going at a lot more of a fast pace. But if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Numbers, okay? If you uh, use your phone or uh, some other kind of device, you're welcome to do that. Just I ask you, please try to stay on task, all right? Um, so... Quick review for those who, uh, it's kind of hard to understand where you are if you just open up the book of Numbers and expect to know what in the world's going on. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, and it's also the fourth book, uh, you could almost call it a chapter, in a, in a larger book called the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. And so to understand where we're going tonight, I want to give a quick review of Genesis through Deuteronomy and where we've come to this point in our storyline. And so Genesis obviously kicks off in chapters 1 and 2 describing the creation. God created the world. And in chapter 3, it gets into sin, right? Sin enters the picture. God makes a promise through the woman, Eve, that he's going to one day bring back restoration. Uh, and he's going to do that specifically. Chapters 12 through 50 describe this family that we know is Abraham's family, right? God promises to Abraham, I'm going to make your family a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you bless all the nations on earth. I'm going to lead you into a promised land one day. I'm going to make you uh, the father of many, many sons. And many sons said, Father Abraham, and we do the Hokey Pokey song. And then at the end of Genesis, we get to Egypt because there's a big famine in the land. And so all of Israel's tribe has to move into Egypt to escape the famine. And so that's where Genesis ends off. And Exodus picks up, and the people of God have grown large, large, large in number and become oppressed by the Egyptians and Pharaoh. They become slaves, and they're oppressed, and they're kicked to the curb. And so God, 400 years later, begins to lead his people out of Egypt through a man called Moses. And Moses leads them through the Red Sea God uh, destroys the Egyptian army, leads them into the wilderness. And that is in a timeline where we pick up in Numbers. But before we get to Numbers is the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus describes what happens at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where God gives Moses the law, which is basically a good, fancy, biblical word for here are the guidelines to which you are to be my people and live by. It goes into great detail to describe the law. And so Numbers picks up on this and really gets into more of the storyline. And Numbers spends uh, about a 40-year time span on the journey from Mount Sinai to the cusp of entering into the Promised Land. It would have been a lot sooner had Israel not been sinful and disobeyed God. And so, to give you a little more context, the number the book of Numbers is named so from the first four chapters and then chapter 26, in which God commands the people uh, to take a census, 
And basically, a census is just a good word for finding how many people are in this tribe, how many people in this tribe, how many troops do we have, and basically getting an idea of who is who and where and how many people there are in uh, Israel. And so that is the Greek translated word, the Greek translation of the Bible used because of the numbers that God asks and requests for in the census, they call the book Numbers. But the original Hebrew Bible calls the book, let me get this right, Bimidbar. Bimidbar. It's the Hebrew word that means into the wilderness. And this is probably a lot more of an accurate description of the book because it describes the 40 years in the wilderness. And so Numbers, although it describes a little bit of the law and a little bit of like, uh, some of the specific laws that God has with his people, really it's going to spend more of a, a storyline picture of what, God, what happens with God's people while they're in the wilderness for 40 years. So, but before God leads them into the land, he's got to prepare them. So if, you've gotten, if, you, if you're a note taker, you don't have to, don't feel like shamed if you're not taking notes tonight, but it's just a guide. If you want to look and kind of see and follow where we're going, it's not going to be up on the slide, so I'll try to help you I'll fill in the blanks to the best of my ability if I remember it, okay? But the first point that we look at tonight is that God prepares his people. Before God takes them into this land, he has to prepare them. And he does this in multiple ways. We already described the first way. He's, he asks them to take a census because in order to lead a people, you got to know who you're leading. And so he asks them to take a census. Yes, Moses, know who you're leading. So let's see who you're leading. Chapters 5 and 6 are all about purity, and so he's teaching them purity and how to remain pure. And then chapters 7 and 8 deal with uh, uh, specific instructions on how to consecrate, which is a fancy word for make holy, which is a fancy word for set apart. Okay, so make sure that this, this place, the tabernacle, is not like the rest of the world, which is infected by sin. And so he tells them how to make the tabernacle a holy place. And he also, in chapter 8, gives them priests. The tribe of Levi is going to be a a priesthood. And so then in chapters 9 and 10, ultimately he describes his presence and how he's going to be with them. He's going to be with them by fire, by night, and cloud by day as he's already been leading them. And so God ultimately in the first 10 chapters of Numbers, just to sum it up, all right, you ready for this? Sum it up, God prepares his people. That's what he's doing. He's preparing his people. In the same way, in the same way, that you and I get up every day and you prepare to go into the land of school, right? How do you prepare? You you brush your teeth, you put clothes on, you tie your shoes, you get yourself ready to prepare yourself before you brush your teeth, and you do all these things to get yourself ready to prepare yourself to go to school. And this is, this is a, just a simple way of giving you an illustration of why God is spending 10 chapters on preparing his people. He's getting them ready to enter into this promised land. But the problem is chapter 11 comes in. And this is the cycle, if you haven't really been paying attention, this is the cycle of really all of the Old Testament and really a lot of our lives. But sin enters the picture. The people begin to complain in chapter 11. Here's the most ridiculous thing they begin to complain about, food. We're tired of eating the same meal every day. Legit, that's what they say. Bread is falling from heaven miraculously and forming like a dew on the ground, this thin wafer-like bread that they eat every day. Now, granted, that would be really repetitive. All right, let's be real. Bread every day. 
okay? But they begin to complain about this merit. We're tired of eating bread. We'd rather have the food we had back in Egypt and rather be slaves instead. What? Right? They're forgetting already the goodness and grace of God. And so they enter into this sin, and really it comes to a head whenever Moses and Miriam, Moses, uh, or excuse me, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' siblings, begin to enter into this complaining as well in chapter 12. But the best way to describe it is what uh, Numbers 11, if you're looking at Numbers, turn to chapter 11, verse 10. This is how it describes the situation. Chapter 11, verse 10. Moses gets word of the weeping. Chapter 11, verse 10, and he says this. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. Everyone at the door of his tent, I don't want to eat bread anymore. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. That's the phrase. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. So that's God's response to their complaining. But the Lord is gracious. He endures. He's patient with them. And chapter 13 rolls around, and Moses sends spies into the land of Canaan. They're right on, I mean, like they're, they're on the line, ready to take the land. Moses sends 13 spies into the land to spy it out, to, to, to scope it out, see what it's like, and give a report back. And after some time, they come back, and all but two of the spies give the same report. And that report is very, very discouraging. It's a great land. It's awesome. It's, as the Lord said, flowing with milk and honey. It's an awesome land. There's water. There's oasis. There's great. It's good soil. The problem is there's a lot of really big cities, and there's a lot of really big people and warriors in those cities. Let's not do it. Let's go back. And the people freak out, naturally. Freak out. And that's where we pick up. Numbers chapter 14. We're going to read here. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers, I think you have a context by now. Hopefully you do. Numbers chapter 14. And we're going to read the first four verses here. And that's kind of where we're going to concentrate. Verse 1. Here we go. So they get all of this report back. And like just to give you an idea. There, and there we saw the Nephilim, which is they exaggerated. These people are just really big. And they said... Uh, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And it's like, so they're super afraid of these people. And that's the report they give back to Israel. And in verse 1, it says this. All the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Main point tonight. Fear is rooted in unbelief. At the heart of the people of Israel's grand fear before this giant people in cities and this horrible report is unbelief unbelief there is a joyous peaceful confidence in the lord that is rooted in faith and in numbers uh, 14 1 the people are crying and wailing about the prospect of trying to take this land that god has promised them from people ultimately that they're afraid of 
And at the root of that fear is unbelief. Psalm 78 puts it this way. All right, you don't have to turn. I'm going to go there really quick. Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verses 17 through 22 says it this way. Describing this very similar scenario. Yet they sin still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. There's chapter 11, the fear that we already talked about, complaining about the food. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because, why? They did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. That's at the heart. That's, that's the proof there that at Numbers 14, what is described as fear, at the heart of that is unbelief. They didn't believe God had the power to overtake the people that were before them. They would rather, verse 2, be slaves again in Egypt or dead already than have to face their enemies. Think about that. They'd rather be dead than face these people and possibly win. Not possibly, definitely win because the Lord is goodness of God. Apparently, they forgot about the grace and goodness of God. Apparently, they doubted God's power. And as a result, this caused them to disobey God's word. That's what verse 4 describes. Look at verse 4 again. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Fear led to disobedience. Unbelief leads to fear. Fear leads to disobedience. Do you see that chain effect? When you lack the faith that God is all-powerful, God has been gracious and faithful to me. He is a good God. I believe that. Then you will not have a result of fear. And as a result, you will not disobey God. But when you lack the faith that God is all powerful, you will fall into fear and thus you will disobey the Lord. That's the chain effect. This is the same issue with our own sinful fears. The reason you're afraid is because you've forgotten all the ways that God has shown himself faithful and good to you in the past. The reason you're afraid is because you've begun to doubt the power of God to hold you and keep you in the midst of any trial or storm in your life. And as a result, it leads to your disobedience. You fear, just to bring it home even a little further... You fear because your parents' marriage failed or is failing that you'll never have a happy marriage either. You fear not being accepted by friends, family, whoever, your teammates. So you retreat from the Lord by chasing after the guy's approval, the girl's approval. Maybe even compromising yourself in some areas you never wish you would. You fear missing out of fun, usually. That, you know, that's teenage life. You're just fun mongrel. I just want fun. I just want fun, 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 fun. How can I find happiness and fun in my life? And so you fear missing out on fun, so you overlook I hear from y'all. Self out because you don't want to miss anything. That's the number one thing I hear from y'all. Whenever I talk with you, whenever you kind of talk to me about issues, 
whenever I hear about issues amongst our, our students, amongst adolescents in general, there's just too much on my plate. I'm stressed. I've got too much pressure. I've got too much going on. Because you're, you're afraid of missing out or your parents are putting too much on your plate, whatever it is. At the end of the day, it, it's, it's got its root in unbelief and fear. Death. Maybe you're afraid of death. You, family, friends, whoever it be. You're afraid of your parents' disapproval. You're afraid of being rejected by your friends. You're afraid you'll not get the right GPA or test scores to get in college you want. I don't know what it is. You're afraid. You're afraid in here. At the root of that fear is disbelief. And the world says your problem. The world says your problem is you don't believe in yourself enough. That's your problem. You don't believe in yourself enough. You don't believe you have the strength within to overcome your issues. The problem is your circumstances. The problem is your family life sucks. The problem is the world, the bullies in your life. The problem is everybody else. The solution is within you. Just overcome your fears with strength and overcome with self-reliance and being resilient and strong Be a strong person and you can overcome your circumstances. The solution is you. The problem is everybody else. The Bible's message is completely opposite of that. The Bible's message is from Genesis to Numbers to Revelation. The problem is you. The problem is you're not believing in God Almighty. The problem is you fear your fear, and the solution is not believing in yourself and your own courage. It's believing in God and his promises. It's believing that God said he's going to defeat them. God fights for me. I don't have to be bigger than my enemy because God is bigger. It doesn't matter about me. I could be a grasshopper because God is God, and he will defeat them anyway. So the solution is not more courage, more strength within. The solution is trust God. This is why I get, I get irritated whenever I hear messages from, from other Christians or leaders or devotions that have to do with like the David and Goliath story. And just be courageous like David. Well, that's ridiculous. That's not at all the point of the story. You don't need to be more courageous. In fact, David against Goliath, said, the Lord will fight for me today. That's the whole point of the story. He wasn't afraid, not because he had all this courage. He, was un- he wasn't afraid because his trust was in God. Christ already won. That is the promise. Put your trust in that. Fear not man. Fear not people's opinions. Fear God. J.C. Ryle, an old guy from the 18th century, or 19th century, uh, once said, I fear God, therefore I have nothing else to fear. That's a good, simple way of putting it. There are three effects of fear, and we'll, we'll speed through these. One, it makes you sit back and panic. And some of you, you are well acquainted with this. Maybe you struggle with anxiety. Maybe you have, like, you know all about panic. You've had a panic attack. Maybe you're just stressed out. You don't, struggle, you don't have like this uh, diagnosed anxiety issue, but you definitely struggle with anxiousness. 
and you panic a lot. Here's the effect of that. You just end up dwelling on nothing. You can't move forward until you face this thing. You can either sit there or try to retreat from God, but you cannot move forward in your faith until you face this fear by believing God has control of it and he's going to fight for you. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your life? That's what Jesus says. What are you doing by worrying? Legit, stop. Think about this. Whatever you're afraid of right now. I'm not talking about spiders, okay? let's, Let's be real. Them jokers are creepy. I don't like spiders. I'm not talking about, like, your physical fears, like fear of heights. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, like, your fears in life. People's opinion is the number one thing I bet most of us in here struggle with. This is why it might affect the way you dress. This is why it might affect the way you act around this certain group. When you pass this hallway, you have no fears because it's freshmen, and you don't care about what freshmen think. But when you pass the senior hallway, different story. I care, and I'm afraid of their opinion. So I'm going to walk a little higher and a little better. I'm being petty and joking, but in all seriousness, what is your fear? Because all of us in here, because we sin, it's rooted in a disbelief because you feared somebody feared this thing or this situation it makes me uncomfortable to share my faith and so i sin by not obeying the great commission command from jesus i'm afraid because i'm afraid of what people will think i'm afraid of being ostracized The P number two, it makes you miss out on the blessing of God. Chapter 14, the people doubt and sin uh, by just sitting in fear, and none of the generation that was delivered from Egypt, ultimately, at the end of chapter 14, God says, none of you who were delivered from Egypt now as a result of you sitting back in fear and running from me and disobeying my word, none of you are going to get to see crossing the River Jordan and going into the land as a result. And they missed out on the blessing of actually experiencing the land they were promised. They missed the fulfillment of God's blessing on them. And peace is ultimately the center of the gospel. Resting in peace because you know Christ already defeated death and sin. And that's the ultimate blessing. Stop and think about that. When you are in fear and anxiety, like think about that moment. Like you can, you can maybe just focus for a second on whatever it is, that fear, because there's something all of us in here is already thinking about. You're applying this to your life, and that's good. You should be doing that. But think about for a second. You, know, you remember that moment when you used to be afraid of the dark? Some of y'all are like, I still am. But you know what I'm talking about. Like when you were a little kid and you saw that clown that was creepy that day, and all you can think about is... If I step down to go use the bathroom, that clown, I promise you, is going to snatch my feet from under my bed. You know that fear you had? Am I the only one? 
Okay, all right. All right, like some of y'all, like whatever that fear is, I don't, you know what I'm talking about. That fear, the only thing you could think about, your mind is in turmoil. Like you're just like, oh, yeah, you're just like stuck. I don't know what to do. Like, so whatever that, that fear is, on like in that moment, all you can do is think about that, dwell on that, and panic over that, and worry about all the problems that could be a result of what, what could happen. Oh, no, I'm going to make fun of it. I'm sweating. Da, da, da. And you just freak out, and that's the opposite of peace, right? And so what you're doing is you're missing out on the blessing of God, which is peace. And when you fear God instead of people or man or whatever it is in your life, you're missing out on this blessing of man. My sin has been dealt with. I have peace in Christ. I have nothing to worry about. So you miss out on the blessing of God. It makes you sit under the judgment of God. I'm about to trace this pattern here. Chapter 11, the Lord uh, consumes some of the camp in fire, okay, after they're complaining. You want to complain? I don't know why that affects That's not what fire sounds like. But you get it, right? He just consumed some of the camp because they complained. Chapter 11, the people disobey the Lord. He strikes down a ton with a plague. Chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses uh, and the Lord. The Lord gives Miriam leprosy. She's cast out of the camp. Now, she's later healed, but judgment. Chapter 14, the men who spied the land and reported falsely and instilled fear in the people. In chapter 14, they die before the Lord by, by a plague. Chapter 15, a guy decides not to revere God's law. He doesn't observe the Sabbath faithfully, and he's stoned by the command of the Lord. Chapter 16, the Lord splits open the ground underneath a disobedient and fearful group of Israelites, and they're swallowed up into earth. Yes, you heard that right. God literally split open the earth, and they fell in and were consumed and never seen again. Because they disobeyed the Lord. Ultimately, look at what Moses does in chapters 14. Look at verses 18 and 19. Moses begins to intercede for the people. This is what intercede means. Lord, please save them. He puts himself in between the people and an angry God, and he says, wait. And this is what he reminds the Lord. Not that the Lord needed to be reminded of this, but he is pleading and praying to God. And he says this in verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means, listen to this, clear the guilty. If you are sitting in here and you think, ah, it's all good, I can sin, God apparently is gracious, you need to hear that verse. He will by no means clear the guilty. You might can go to your friend or your parents and say, I'm sorry, and that be all good and clear the guilty, and okay, honey, she said I'm sorry, so we'll just give her car back. You might get away with the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the iniquity of his people, or excuse me, in the third and fourth generation. Please 
Moses says, though, in verse 19, Despite that about you, Lord, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. God is a just God. If someone sins, the wages of sin is death. Death they will get. This is where the gospel comes in, though, right? Because God is not just a God of justice. He's a God of love and grace. And what he does is he sends his own son into the story many years later who is going to be way better than Moses at this interceding thing. He's not just going to step in front and say, relent, God, don't punish them. Instead, what he's going to do is he's going to say, don't punish them, punish me instead. And he's going to take the death for us. And that's the point of the gospel. You're not cleared just by saying, forgive me, Lord. You're cleared because you say, forgive me, Lord, based on the grace that you showed through sending your own son to die on a cross, the death that I deserved. I should have hung there because I am the one that put Jesus on the cross. And he took the punishment for me so that I could go free. And here's where it gets really good, okay? Turn to Romans. Turn to Romans. And we're going to study this in your small group, so I'm going to brush over this very, very quickly. So turn to Romans chapter 8, in which uh, there's a lot of really way, way, way smarter, wiser, older guys than myself that say Romans 8 is the most important chapter in all the Bible. And so, we're going to read it. Chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. It's come on the heels of one of the most famous verses in Scripture. Um, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, which gets abused a lot. It's a beautiful verse, and it comes on the heels of that. Verse 31 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you hear how the Bible is speaking, how God is speaking through his word against your fears? Let Let me make something clear, though. If you are not in Christ, if you are a rebel of Jesus because you do not want to have anything to do with church, Christ, anything of the Lord, I like my sin. This does not apply to you because God is not for you. If he looks down at you and sees his son, then he's for you. And so the truth is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who died did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What does justified mean? God who justifies. Justifies means what? Somebody tell me. We've talked about this a lot. What does justified mean? Oh, come on. Come on, please. Yeah, tell me, Micah. Made right. Amen. Made right. If you need to remember that, circle that word, justifies, right, made right, okay? Made right. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding 
You hear that word? Who does that sound like? Moses interceding for us. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, y'all. Here's the picture. This is, the, this is beautiful. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and God the Father looks down. He's blazing hot with anger every time you and I sin. Every single time, whether you're lying, whether you're cheating, whether you're, uh, I don't know, think about all the sins in your life. Whatever you're doing, every time he is blazing hotly. But Jesus steps in front and intercedes and reminds him, they're covered. They're covered, Lord. I've got them. My blood covers them. Man, y'all, what a mighty Savior. What a good Jesus that we serve. There's an old story of a woman on board a ship who was much disturbed in a storm while her husband, the captain, was calm and restful. She asked him why he was so peaceful when she was so distressed. He did not answer in words, but instead he took down his sword off the fireplace and he held it to her chest, the blade to her chest. She smiled. He said, why are you not afraid? This is a sharp sword with which I could kill you in a minute. Yes, she replied, but I am not afraid of a sword when it is my husband who holds it. So, he said, neither am I afraid of a storm when it is my father who sends it and who manages it. Now, an old guy named Charles Spurgeon said this about that story. Now, since all the trials and troubles of this mortal life are as much in the hand of the great God as that sword was in the hand of the good woman's husband, we need not be afraid of them, for they are all in his power. Let's pray. Father God, may we...